And welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 126, recorded on July 15th, 2019. Today we will talk about face recognition rules in Europe, uh, the French big tech tax and Trump's reaction to it, data flows between Europe and the US, and more. We have also prepared two interviews today instead of one, uh, both recorded at Pirate Summit by our editor Robin Wouters. And the first one is uh, with Lubomila Jordanova, uh, whose uh, startup Plan A uh, won the competition at the conference. But actually, the interview uh, was recorded before that, so we didn't know it, total coincidence. And the second conversation is with uh, Tim Schumacher, a local entrepreneur and investor from Cologne, who also happens to be the chairman at IO and many other things. So these are both... Both great interviews. Do stick around for them. Uh, in the meantime, I'm your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is life? Hi, Andre. It's going well. How are you? Yeah, everything is uh, good uh, here in the glorious city of Groningen. It's pretty cold, actually, out there. Uh, I'm wearing my uh, jacket uh, outside. Uh, how about uh, the sunny Utah? It's quite nice here. We had a nice thunderstorm last night, but... Um... Really enjoying my time here is, is getting shorts my last week. Back to Europe very soon. That's great. That's perfect. Europe is missing you. Very soon. Right. And uh, before we uh, actually move any further, I wanted to say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I wanted to uh, give a quick update on uh, Bolt in Paris. So last time, uh, Natalie, you remembered that uh, you actually asked the right question about uh, whether uh, Bolt is uh, still in Paris or whether they uh, withdrawn uh, their e-scooters, which they actually distributed there uh, in the fall last year with uh, much fanfare. So I actually did talk um, uh, to the company and uh, I got a confirmation uh, that indeed uh, there is uh, no uh, more bold e-scooters in Paris. So I wanted to quote uh, the statement in full. Uh, some parts of it are actually pretty interesting. So the quote begins, uh, Bolt was among the first to launch scooters in Paris last year and to participate in the discussion with the city on how to set up rules that would work for all three parties, the users, the operators, and the city. We still believe that light electric vehicles are a great alternative to cars in congested cities and will be pursuing the strategy in the long term. But due to high levels of vandalism in Paris and the city trying to limit the number of scooters on the streets, we have decided to take a proactive step and stop distributing our scooters. We'll keep working with the city of Paris, focus on uh, our successful ride-hailing service and uh, consider relaunching scooters in the future. So obviously we will keep uh, watching uh, this uh, space uh, now and uh, I can already uh, tease you a little bit by saying that I just have discussed uh, the vandalism issue uh, that uh, Bolt mentioned uh, with another e-scooter startup and it seems like the problem is actually there. So I'm hoping to run a special episode of our podcast next week uh, featuring that interview and it probably will be dedicated uh, uh, to the European scooters market uh, in general. So Natalie, what what do you think about it? So I'm really looking forward to that interview. I What you've told me so far, it sounds really exciting. But unfortunately, in the UK last week, we had our first e-scooter fatality. Um, that's worth mentioning, which is really sad because e-scooters aren't even legal in the UK, even if they're privately owned. And last week also coincided with a number of e-scooter companies trying to have a conversation with the government about how um, operators can begin offering their services across the United Kingdom. So I think the timing for, for that is, is really, really troubled, um, especially considering um, that, that very sad news. So um, definitely something them to keep following. And it's really something that I really enjoy, Andre, your coverage on it because it, it is such an exciting space to follow right now so if we had to if we had to make any forecasts do you think it's going to happen in the uk this year that e-scooters will be allowed on the streets i could see a small pilot 
opening somewhere, um, maybe not in London, but in a smaller town or city, I definitely could see it possible. You do have a lot of forward thinking policymakers um, in the UK, but there are a number of things on the the, the agenda right now with the leadership contest and still uh, Brexit is also supposed to be happening. So it doesn't seem like there's been a ton of bandwidth for thinking about um, innovation, policy innovation in other areas. So um, I want to be hopeful and say that it might be a possibility, but a lot of conversation needs to happen before I actually we see something happening there for sure. It's just that the UK is such a great market uh, for uh, for these companies. Uh, it's very much uh, sought after, I would expect. And uh, uh, that's why I really think that they are going to be pushing for any sort of uh, regulatory uh, provisions uh, for uh, the, these devices to be allowed on the streets and all. But it, it's also important that you mention the vandalism aspect, because I understand a number of uh, bike sharing companies actually pulled out of the British market because of vandalism. Um, I know this was um, a real concern in Manchester, for example, yep. but also elsewhere in the UK. That was why a lot of these bike sharing companies actually left that market because vandalism was so high. With e-scooters, it, it is a really considerable issue because every city that anyone's ever been in that has e-scooters, you definitely see some beheaded ones or smashed ones littering the sidewalks and streets. Yeah, but I also I'm also pretty sure that uh, people see e-scooters and it's a new thing. And one of the reactions that certain people get uh, is just to throw them in the canal or break them or do whatever else. But I think within like half a year or something, people just get used to it. And there is no, not that much of an incentive to vandalize these things, hopefully. And you also might see something different if e-scooters were operated more as a public-private partnership, which is something that I could see happening in the UK. If they're all owned by private companies, vandalism, um, you'd imagine, is is a lot higher of a concern because it's it, it touches the corporate bottom line. But if it was an e-scooter partnership with, say, the city of Sheffield and uh, voice scooters, for example, um, I think maybe you might, if there was some city ownership there, you might see a really a different strategy. And that's what some of the successful bikes sharing schemes in the UK, that's the route that they've gone. Um, so it would be really interesting to follow and see what happens. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Well, I'm really sure that we are not going to miss it. Uh, anyway, we are paying a lot of attention <laughs> to this particular market. Okay, enough enough of e-scooters. Let's talk about more fun stuff. Let's talk about facial recognition, for example. So that's my story for the day. And uh, what I learned uh, uh, from a report uh, by Politico uh, that a group of European privacy watchdogs uh, from different countries uh, have recently held a meeting in Brussels, and unnamed representatives of two national authorities told Politico that, I quote, the watchdogs discussed new guidelines that would effectively tighten restrictions around the use of facial recognition technology. Uh, the quote ends. So the main idea that these unnamed national privacy watchdogs reportedly have in mind is to reclassify uh, facial recognition data as biometric data. Well, I mean, that's actually a bit surprising because uh, the definition of uh, biometric data in the GDPR itself includes facial images as an example of biometric data. So I didn't really understand how exactly that is not biometric data at the moment. And I just wanted to quote uh, the entire definition from the GDPR, just so you understand uh, what it's like. It's not really long at all. So the quote begins, uh, biometric data means personal data resulting from specific technical processing relating to the physical, physiological or behavior characteristics of a natural person, which allow or confirm the unique identification of that natural person, such as facial images or dactyloscopic data. The quote ends. So how the hell it is not classified as biometric data at the moment? I'm kind of... Maybe I'm missing the point here. So if you know uh, what uh, what's the what's the idea, just uh, hit me up on Twitter and correct me. But uh, uh, from where I see it, it looks uh, it looks quite weird. Anyway, let's keep going uh, now. So what does it actually mean if it gets reclassified? So if 
or actually rather when, I suppose, uh, this uh, facial recognition data officially becomes biometric data, its status will change quite a bit because under GDPR, uh, this kind of data is considered sensitive. Which means, to quote Politico, uh, that it, uh, the quote begins, requires explicit consent from the person whose data is being collected, as well as other stricter privacy protections. Uh, the quote ends. So, no explicit consent, no facial recognition. Quite simple. Uh, but this uh, simple thing would reportedly severely impact the use of facial recognition by companies and governmental organizations alike. In public spaces, for example, it wouldn't be enough anymore to just put up a sign that the place under surveillance and uh, uh, cameras are recorded and so on and so forth. That's not going to uh, be uh, considered uh, an explicit consent anymore. So that's already uh, quite a bit of a change. And just to add some context here, uh, this reported meeting uh, also coincided with a heated public debate in the UK about the use of facial recognition uh, by the police. So last Wednesday, uh, the Information Commissioner, uh, Elizabeth Denham, issued a warning to the police forces uh, saying that the recently held facial recognition trials, I quote, represent the widespread processing of biometric data of thousands of people as they go about their daily lives. And that is a potential threat to privacy that should concern us all. The quote ends. She also added the following, another quote begins, Legitimate aims have been identified for the use of live facial recognition, but there remain significant privacy and data protection issues that must be addressed, and I remain deeply concerned about the role out of this technology. The quote ends. To sum it up, it seems like it's going to become much harder for companies and governments to use facial recognition at will, which is probably a good thing after all. Uh, we don't know much about how and when a change will happen, but there certainly will be a uh, public consultation uh, before the restrictions uh, will become mandatory. So let's keep our eyes open for that. And I also need to add that there is even more context to this, but that's something I will talk about uh, later in my reading recommendation. Now, Natalie, uh, what do you think about uh, facial recognition becoming ubiquitous both on and offline? Because it will, right? Yeah, and you know what? This is one of the areas that is that when you look at kind of co competition and the success of some of these Chinese technologies, facial recognition is an area where uh, that country has really been able to excel, especially with data collection in that space. And it's led to some very interesting innovations, but also some that from a European perspective look very concerning. And I think it's very difficult to kind of find this middle ground of privacy in this area, it's either you kind of have a very open um, companies can use this type of data and people can collect it, or you have to kind of go all the way to the other pole of having a very secure privacy. I think finding this middle ground is very difficult. So it's either one or the other. But I know if this kind comes to pass, there will be a very strong critique from companies that aren't able to use this data um, and there's always going to be that point it comes back to competition and then data. If we're in this situation where data is the new oil, this is one less area that of data that companies and governments can collect. Um, people will, will make the point that, that Europe will be falling, falling behind. And do you think in general that Europe, as in the European Commission in this case, is a good organization uh, to create uh, the rules uh, governing the use of facial recognition? Well, I think you have to think, well, if the European Commission isn't making the rules, then who is? And that then it's governed by um, companies themselves, state, domestic governments, um, and I'm, I'm not sure. I think, I think the European Commission is a, has really put a lot of effort into trying to, to do things in the right way in terms of innovation. I know there's a lot of critiques that they're moving too slowly, but I think, I, I think there are probably worse entities, um, to be, to be policing this kind of data. So I, I would feel comfortable with that. Right. Uh, next thing for us is the interview. One of the interviews I announced uh, at the beginning. Uh, this one is a conversation with uh, Tim Schumacher, the entrepreneur and investor from Cologne, recorded by Robin Wouters. Let's listen to this one together and uh, we'll be back uh, real soon to talk about uh, France of all places. 
Hey, this is Robin Walters for Tech.eu, and I'm here still at the Pirate Summit in Cologne. And I'm here with a local entrepreneur, uh, Tim Schumacher. Maybe give us some of your background, because it's really interesting. Hey there, and uh, yeah, nice to meet you again, Robin. And uh, thanks for interviewing me on your show. Quick background on me. I've been an entrepreneur all my life. Um, still best known probably for founding Cedo.com, the domain marketplace, which is a local Cologne company. Ran that as a CEO for, for over 10 years and, and scaled it up to, to over 300 people uh, before we sold to United Internet. And uh, since then, I've been doing a mix of angel investments and my own investments. One of the more known investments or slash co-foundings is, uh, is a company called io.com, which is the, the makers of Adblock Plus, the popular ad blocker. And uh, now uh, I'm kind of splitting my time between this one, uh, Ecosia.org, the green search engine is also one of my pet projects is a nonprofit these days um, and um, a new SaaS business uh, where I acquire small SaaS companies. Great. We're going to go in a bit more detail on that in a second, but maybe as a local, tell us more about the Cologne startup ecosystem because I don't actually know that much about it, even though I go to Pirates on it pretty much every year. Uh, I don't really know what's going on here. Well, Cologne is, um, is, is, is a great city with, with very open-minded people. Um, what I really like about it is that people, and actually sometimes uh, the Colonians adopt the Americans of, uh, of Germany and in a positive sense, because Americans tend to be more open and more positive about things. And, and, and I think that's what characterizes Cologne. Now, of course, the scene is, is arguably a lot smaller than Berlin. Uh, when I, when I look at the amount of deal flow, for example, I have my angel business, uh, I think Berlin outnumbers Cologne like 10 to 1, um, even though I'm local here. Uh, but we've, we've got a very vibrant scene. We've got obviously things like the Pirate Summit where we're here, the, the, the great conference. We've got uh, a ton of co-working spaces. We have uh, a, a lot of uh, successful uh, startups, uh, some actually not that well-known, also not, not that many consumer things, but com- companies like Clever Bridge, for example, Homelike is a, is is a good one. Obviously, our io.com and and many other more were like they're they're not that that much talked about. But there's actually a, a healthy healthy also healthy engineering culture here. We've got like a lot of good universities. Uh, Bonn is great, uh, and Aachen for for engineering. Uh, Cologne is great for business, uh, medical, and a lot of other things. It's actually biggest university in Germany, bigger than bigger than the one in Berlin. So we've got a lot of students coming out. A lot of uh, a lot of people. Who, who like to work here and and also in terms of starting a company i've seen it's a lot less competitive than berlin like in berlin there's so many headhunters around it's like so easy to also lo- lose talent to other companies uh in, in cologne it's it, it seems to be a bit more stable and uh and, and people are more loyal to a company so actually we're just really we're just really enjoying cologne as a, as a headquarters City. That's cool. That's some, some good promotion right there. Um, so as an entrepreneur and an angel investor, you're very hands-on. How do you decide which project that you partner with, I guess you could call it, and invest in? And how do you decide how to split your time between them? Well, I I mostly invest in stuff I understand. And, and I have a few areas where which I understand more than others. So, so I do uh, marketplace, consumer products. I do a bit of ad tech and marketing tech um, and, and SaaS, obviously. And um, I skip all the stuff which I don't really get, which is blockchain. <laughs> it's one thing I really I haven't gone around blockchain yet. Uh, also, anything hardware related, um, I, I, I don't really get it enough. And obviously, like totally unrelated things like food and health and stuff, I, I, I don't touch either. Uh, that's one thing. And other than that, I, of course, decide... In, in, in regards to the people, I, uh, I really look for the, like, like anybody else, I guess, for great teams and great entrepreneurs. And, and that's also the deciding factor at the end, whether I get very hands-on involved or hands-off. It's, it's always like, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's if, if, if the founder and the angel get along well, and they both appreciate its other qualities and, uh, and the founder also asks for help when he or she wants it, then, then, uh, I've I've seen founder angel relationships can become super super valuable. On the other hand, there I have a lot of investments where I I don't do much. It's like they do their thing and that's fine. Um, and I think you you really don't always know before. It's like almost in a in a relationship or a friendship. You don't when you meet a, fir- a person for the first time. Some some things intensify over time, and others just kind of keep tugging along. And you see people once a year or something, and it's still fine. But um, 
you don't always know beforehand. Yeah, sure. Um, you, we talked about this before, but you basically have a venture going on where you buy a very small SaaS business from around the world and sort of pull them together. Uh, or can you sort of elaborate on that with you in your own, your own words? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, the, the venture is called uh, SaaS uh, Group. Uh, it's just one of the first time I used the a new top-level domain, the .group uh, top-level domain and registered SaaS.group or bought it through Cedo actually. Um, still dog-fooding my own products or my own old products. And uh, so what we do there is we we buy small SaaS companies. What I've seen is that there are a lot of great developers, mostly kind of bootstrapped developers, bootstrap companies where the developers have done a great job uh, figuring out product market fit and scaling the company to maybe a couple hundred thousand revenues or a million or two. But then they don't want to grow it further. They, they hate employing people. They don't want to become administrators. Uh, they, they, they are builders by heart. Uh, and they also want to potentially build something new because if, if you build a company and then at some point it becomes a certain routine and some people thrive on that and want to continue to, to, to make that bigger and hire new people and other people actually get bored. And, and so actually I see that quite often. And then essentially my offer to the entrepreneurs is, okay, you know, we'll, uh, we'll make sure that your bootstrapped SaaS business is in good hands. We'll, uh, we'll continue with the brand. We, put fresh people on there. You please keep uh, consulting us uh, as much as you like. Uh, keep, uh, keep, keep a good relationship with your, with your former product, because if you've created something, it's kind of stays your baby all, all, all life, you life uh, along. And, uh, but uh, Hey, let's, um, uh, let's, let's take this to the next level and, and essentially buy it. And, um, and that's the business model. So we, we, we buy the startups and then we try to, employ a certain type of tactics. We look at uh, marketing, for example, it's usually a neglected skill. We look at pricing. We look at um, uh, some elements which are just where we can, where we can take some costs out. And um, uh, and usually those are really great businesses, very healthy. Bootstrap businesses are very healthy because people have a financial discipline and they have a like being effective and efficient is in their DNA. Well, what's your ultimate goal with this? Because how many SaaS businesses can you possibly buy and combine until it becomes boring for you as well? I don't. I don't know even if it's boring for me. Actually, I've. It's part of that logic is is I, that I've thought about myself, what I'm good at, and I'm not really good at figuring out product market fit. Uh, so I'm not like super visionary in terms of that. I figure out what's the next big thing, but I'm pretty good at scaling. Um, and I'm pretty actually operationally pretty good and seeing business models. And, uh, and so I could probably buy hundreds of those before it gets boring. Uh, and of course, at some point I would put more structures in there. I don't have a goal. And to be honest, I, what I like now about this business, but also about other business I have, I don't have this goal of, Hey, you know, I want to, I want to sell this company and make an exit. Cause actually I think that's a, one of the German problems is Germans tend to think about exits and save money too quickly. So I wish there would be more entrepreneurs who just kind of make something big. And so as much as we say, for example, for IO, Hey, you know, we want to make IO big and just grow it. And we're not thinking about selling with a SaaS business. The same thing is we just want to keep building it and maybe at some point just a dividend case or we'll i don't know we'll just keep running it um that's uh that's just as fine as uh as anything else there's no end goal it's great it's a little bit unusable it's very interesting um so as an angel investor you've been doing this long enough to sort of see i guess the trends and the evolution um not just in germany but in the rest of europe as well uh, so if you still i don't know if you saw any of the startup pitches today at pirate summit for example but do you feel like the conversations that you have with entrepreneurs now are totally different from the ones you had five ten years ago not really i think it's it, just like like 10 years or probably 50 years ago it's always about like a great team which solves a problem and has a a great solution for that. And uh, that's, that's, that's at the core of it. And of course the topics change and there are certain fads and, 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 and hot topics uh, at every pirate summit or at every conference. And, but just the, the fundamentals of it are still the same. It's, it's like, yeah, everybody's looking for, for great teams to, to solve actual real problems. And um, yeah. So, so for example, I mean, one of the most pressing problems, obviously, of our time is is is, is climate change, and 
and generally ecological problems. So I, I'm, I'm actually glad to see that more and more startups are coming out and say, hey, you know, we want to solve certain aspects of it technologically, whether it's food waste or deforestation like we do with Ecosia or fuel consumption or anything, mobility. Uh, there's so many aspects of the life where, of course, uh, things need to change. And uh, so that's one of those things where, where actually th those will be one of the things I wouldn't say is those aren't, those aren't fads, but those are really necessary long-term developments and hopefully like long-term trends where where we really see the startups for the better um, and I hope to see more of that. Great, fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing your insights uh, on Cologne, but also the stuff that you're doing now and uh, best of luck and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. You too. Welcome back to the podcast of uh, Tech uh, EU. We just uh, have listened to a great interview with uh, Tim Schumacher, uh, learned uh, something, I hope, uh, about uh, the local ecosystem in Cologne. And now it is time to go back to the European scale. And uh, Natalie, what did you want to talk about today? So today I want to talk about what was, I think, probably the most significant story of the last week. And I thought it'd be important to do a little bit of a rundown because it's likely that you'll be hearing a lot more about this in the coming weeks and months. So just for a background, on Thursday, France passed their new tech tax law, which will impose a 3% tax on revenues earned in France from specific digital companies. The law focuses on just about 30 companies that generate at least 750 million euros in annual revenues from digital services, and those include 25 million euros from within France. The companies that are affected are largely U.S. tech giants, but there's also some companies in China that are affected, Germany, and in France that will be affected by the new law. This digital tax is expected to bring in about 500 million euros for France this year. So this is a very big move, and the law is intended to address tax policy that has largely not been able to keep up with many of the global tech giants who make considerable amounts of profit in countries where they have very lean operations. As profits for the biggest companies continue to surge, their tax burden has largely remained low, especially when you compare this to the tax burden that's placed on other types of multinational businesses. So finding a taxation solution for this increasingly digitalized economy is a key goal for the international community. It's not just France, but France's singular policy effort came after many efforts trying to develop a multilateral taxation strategy uh, across many different fields. But all of those talks broke down. In May, the OECD signed off on a roadmap to develop a better strategy for this type of taxation that was adopted by over 130 countries. But it was just kind of a strategy, but nothing was, was officially decided. In 2015, research by the OECD estimated revenue losses from the digital economy to be up to 240 billion US dollars, which is equivalent to about 10% of global corporate tax revenue. It's likely that this number is higher today. This is also a discussion that's been ongoing in the, at the EU level and it's something we've covered on the podcast before. Earlier this year, the European Commission published proposals for a 3% tax on the revenues of large internet companies with global revenues above 750 million euros, which is very similar to the, the solution that's just been adopted by France. However, developing a common EU taxation strategy for these digital businesses broke down thanks to opposition from Ireland, Sweden, and several other European countries. Some of these countries were concerned about possible retaliation from the United States. The Czech Republic was one, for example, whereas other countries were concerned about impacts to their domestic companies as well as to those headquartered there. With the announcement of this policy, it's clear that many ongoing discussions, but no action, was simply too little, too late for France. French finance minister Bruno Le Maire said, and I'll quote here, I will be very simple and very clear. I cannot accept to have Google, Amazon, or Facebook paying less taxes than my butcher or bookshop, end quote. And I think this quote is very powerful, and it really kind of captures a lot about the discussions that, that have been happening in France for quite a long time. And this policy is not unexpected. And 
France especially has been very outspoken about their plans to move forward with the digital service tax for quite some time. Um, however, they're still committed to multilateralism on this issue. And so if the EU or the OECD decides on a common plan, there's a provision in the French law that will move to adopt those common standards and remove this current policy. But it wasn't long after the French law was passed where the UK announced that it too would be imposing a new digital service tax designed to raise 400 million pounds a year by 2022. So this law would be expected to go into effect next April and will tax companies that generate at least 500 million pounds a year in global revenue at 2% on the money they make from UK users. Spain and Austria have also indicated that they will similarly pursue their own digital tax laws. The French and British announcements were followed by a swift rebuke from the United States, where the U.S. Treasury Department has launched an investigation into the new tax policies to determine if they're considered unfair competition and if they can be subject to regulatory tariffs. One of the key reasons for this is that the French tax enacts a bigger toll on foreign companies as compared to French ones. And concerns were also raised in Ireland, which hosts the European headquarters of many of the U.S. tech giants. And some critics were wondering if it would bite into Ireland's profit and tax revenue and really what should be done there. Well, it's too early to say what the impact of these will be until they come into effect. According to a report done by Deloitte and a research organization called TAJ, which was done earlier this year, it is suggested that the impact on these global tech giants will be light. They suggest the cost to be largely passed on to consumers through higher costs for products, such as those on Amazon, and for prices for online advertising. So we'll have to wait and see here. But in any case, France has really got the ball rolling, and the new policy will largely force conversation on this issue. So there's quite a lot more we can say about this, but I don't want to go on too long here. I've left some interesting links in the show notes on the podcast, so you can have a look about what's been being said. But I think it's something we're going to hear a lot about And especially the comments from the United States and elsewhere have been very strong. um, And we'll we'll see what happens there. And it's something we will continue to follow. I really like uh, where this whole thing is going, I have to say. And uh, I mean, it's a a shame that uh, the regulation was not uh, passed on the uh, European level initially. I think it would have been so much easier. And now we're taking the scenic route with uh, uh, different countries uh, approving this same regulation separately and now the and then they will probably have to sort of harmonize uh, everything and then there still will be a european wide law that will be probably about the same as what was uh, initially proposed but we also I, I think it's really commendable from france's point of view it, they've shown a, a very clear leadership on this issue and it doesn't come um, with with no costs attached. Like they've received quite a lot of criticism um, across the globe for enacting this, but they've made a very strong stand, and I think it's a necessary one. Um, and think taxation of three percent of profits of of these companies is really really not a lot compared to, especially when you look at other types of businesses how they how they're being taxed. So it's a conversation that's long overdue. Um, and they're just forcing the issue here. And um, I think it's it's really great leadership on, on their behalf. I have to say, somehow, I was actually surprised that it was France uh, doing this. Well, and it was France and Germany that were leading the conversation, especially in the EU, when the conversations were happening at the end of last year and early this year. Uh, but France is not re- afraid to kind of... Um, kind of speak strongly um, against the United States right now. Uh, this week, they also announced that they will be launching their own space force. Um, so that so That's very similar to what um, the U.S. Um, announced last year. So so they, they um, are pulling no punches here. <laughs> Space Force, really? I didn't. I didn't. Ha- I didn't have that. Can you just uh, send me the link and probably put it in the show notes? Sure, now? <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one interested. <laughs> Now, let's move from France back to uh, Germany, that is to Pirate Summit uh, uh, in Cologne, uh, from where we're bringing you the next interview. And this one is a conversation with Lyubomila Jordanova, the founder and CEO at Plan A, uh, which is the winner of this year's Pirate Summit startup competition. But as I, as I said at the beginning... The conversation actually uh, happened before uh, the finals, so Robin had no idea that Lubomila was uh, going to win. Let's listen to this together, and uh, then we'll talk about uh, uh, recommendations. 
So hey, this is Robin Walters for TechRU, and I'm here at the Pirate Summit in Cologne. Uh, annual stop, uh, always one of my favorite conferences. And I'm here with Lubomila, who's one of the startups pitching here uh, for Plan A. Can you briefly explain what you do? Hi, Robin. Uh Thank you for talking to me. So Plan A is an action platform in the fight against climate change. We use data to predict where and how climate change will hit the hardest. And using the insights, we match businesses to environmental organizations that need funding support. Right. So what's the business model behind this? So we charge a fee uh, to the businesses that work with us. Businesses work with us for three reasons. Uh, data-driven CSR, employee engagement, and, of course, impact marketing. Great. So what brings you to Paris Summit? Um, well, of course, like the fact that we're pitching, it's always a great opportunity to connect to uh, people who believe in what we do and the big fight of climate change. But the other aspect is that so far I've never been to Pirate Summit and it's always been one of the conferences that gets the most buzz because of its size, because of the approach. So I'm actually quite fascinated by what I've seen so far. Um, let's see what happens in the next 24 hours, but so far so good. Fantastic. I haven't seen many of the startup pitches, but do, is there a lot of um, attention going to like the sustainability, renewable energy, uh, climate change, finding solutions, etc.? So uh, this morning I pitched in the agri-tech, green-tech, uh, med-tech uh, section, and uh, there was only two other startups which were tackling environmental issues. One was sustainable energy, the other one was uh, service and how unsustainable they are. Uh, I haven't seen many, but um, of course, as you know quite well, well, the topic is getting more and more prominence and uh, we're banking on this a lot uh, with the belief that people are getting actually how severe the situation is. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask uh, startup founders is always, why did you get into this business? Did you have, is it like a personal drive? Were you working in the sector before or uh, like, why did you come up with this idea? Uh, from a background perspective, I don't have anything to do with uh, ecology, sustainability, science. Uh, I'm with a business background. Two years ago, I got uh, into digging scientific papers uh, just out of kind of a concern to understand what's happening with the health of the planet and it was quite evident that uh, the science was proving that we have a big problem uh, on our hands. Uh, I got further concerned by speaking to all the stakeholders and seeing that they don't have a way to act on it so I basically quit my job and built a company. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. So what stage is the company in now? Where are you based by the way? Uh, we're based in Berlin. Uh, we're currently raising 1 million. Uh, we already have quite a lot of traction, over 100,000 people in our community, over 100 businesses that have committed uh, half a million to environmental projects. Uh, this is only since the beginning of 2019. Um, we've built quite of a big uh, network of uh, all the stakeholders that are relevant to the fight against climate change. We believe that they need to talk to each other and they need to collaborate. Uh, we use a very positive voice. So um, I think this is what has gotten us uh, where we are at the moment. Right. And do you also feel when you have conversations with companies that you want to partner with uh, that this conversation has sort of shifted over the years, that there's more awareness, that they're more keen on uh, trying new things like Plan A? Uh, certainly. It's just so fascinating how uh, easy the conversations are. Everyone asks me like, oh, what is your usual sales cycle? Uh, we have a rule that if within the first month the company doesn't commit the initial ticket, which is 2,000 euros, we don't work with them because that means they don't understand the severity of the fight against climate change. So far, we've had 89% uh, success rate with this kind of approach. Uh, so uh, it can show you how uh, committed companies of all sizes are. That's amazing. Um, can you go into a bit more detail about um, sort of the model? So companies sign up, they get data sort of in return, and then it's, it's sort of a feedback loop, right? Because you get the data as well, and then you can improve your model. Uh, but maybe just elaborate on yeah. how it works. So the process is really straightforward. We collect data that feeds into our algorithm. We're able to create based on this uh, priority cards for countries that allow us to understand what the biggest environmental issues on a country level are. Based on this, we identify the most important actors that address these issues, and then we find funding for them. Companies get from us uh, impact reporting, of course. They also get a lot of data about the, the industry and how the industry is performing with regards to environmental responsibility and environmental repercussions, so negative effects. And we then match them to projects related to their industry and help them become sustainable themselves.
Great. And what, what would be your ideal customer in terms of size or what, what sector they're in? Um, so we have at the moment uh, two main types of customers. One is the big corporates, which are international. It is really important for them to engage better with their employees. And this is where we come in. Um, we have been working with uh, some of the biggest uh, aerospace companies as well as like uh, furniture companies and so on that we all know. Uh, on the other hand, we have companies that are scale-ups and they want to expand their uh, market. So we help them communicate the fact that they're sustainable companies and they, they've committed to sustainable projects. Great. So let's say the stars align, you win the startup competition, you raise a million next month. Uh, what do you actually do with the money? What's the next step? You? So we have uh, three things that we need to uh, do with the money. One is uh, expanding our algorithm into analysis of natural resources. So far, we've been looking at um, negative effects on a country level, having looked at uh, flora, fauna, but essentially what has been happening now and predicting what's going to happen in the future. Um, we need to start looking at natural resources and the correlation with industries. The second aspect is uh, expanding our ambassador program. Our community of 100,000 people is what actually uh, is our channel for getting companies. Uh, we don't do any outbound sales, so our community basically feeds information to us what companies we should be working with. Um, so we want to give more back to them. We do educational courses with them, workshops and so on, and we just want to be able to expand this offering, uh, which is our thank you for their commitments uh, to inform us of companies doing good. The final thing is um, uh, the most important aspect of uh, our work. It's essentially uh, the money are going to allow us to expand uh, our reach. Uh, at the moment, uh, the companies that we work with are predominantly based in Europe, mainly France, Germany, uh, Belgium, Netherlands. Uh, we want to be able to uh, reach a few more markets, definitely in Europe and in Asia, uh, because we've been getting requests, but it is it requires us to be able to have the manpower to engage um, in a respectful and uh, detailed way. Sure, that's a very uh, direct and detailed, very clear answer. Thank you very much. Uh, just uh, broadly speaking, out of interest, um, is, it, is Berlin a really good place to build that type of company? Berlin is the best place to build this type of company. I was in London when I came up with the idea and I ended up uh, leaving because I found out how important social impact was for the environment in Berlin. Uh, it just made me uh, really quickly realize that I would be able to meet the right stakeholders and get people to believe in the topic that we were uh, working on a lot before there was hype about sustainability and climate change and it did work out. Um, the environment is friendly. It is uh, easy uh, in terms of moving around the city, easy in terms of, uh, you know, finding good connections and uh, not easy with finding a house. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely the most inspiring place we could be doing this. Fantastic. Well, I think you have a great mission and I uh, wish you the best of luck with planning. Thank you so much, Robin. Welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu. Still myself, Andrew Degler, together with Natalie Novik. And we are about to recommend you a few things to read this week. I will start and uh, I will uh, go kind of back uh, to talk along the same lines as I already uh, I already mentioned in my segment at the beginning. So we're going to talk about the data uh, flowing between uh, the European Union and the United States. Uh, so first, do you remember Safe Harbor, Natalie? I, it's not ringing a bell for me. Really? Okay, so uh, basically it was the first sort of an uh, agreement between the EU and the US about uh, how the data can be uh, sent uh, between uh, the, two, uh, the two parts of the world. And then at some point it was actually deemed invalid. And then everybody was uh, panicking and uh, uh, some other sort of regulations were brought in place uh, to govern the data exchange between the European Union and the United States. And uh, the most interesting part of it, which I wasn't really aware of, is that the same court case uh, that was uh, in play back then, it's still not closed. And it still may cause quite a bit of trouble for international internet companies before the end of this year. 
So the news hook here is that last week, uh, the Court of Justice of the European Union in Luxembourg had a hearing of uh, pretty much that same safe harbor related case. Uh, the idea is that in December, the court is supposed to rule whether the current regulation that defines data flows between the EU and the US, whether they are sufficiently protected from the US-based intelligence agencies. And that was uh, the whole idea at the beginning as well, uh, is that if the companies like Facebook send uh, data of uh, their European users to the US servers, then the US uh, uh, spy agencies, uh, so-called, would be able to get access to this uh, data and use it for uh, whatever they need it for. So there is Again, a lot of context here, and uh, this, the whole story is like about uh, six, seven years long, and I would say that this context is uh, much better suited for reading than for listening, which is why I decided to move uh, this uh, this one to the reading recommendations. And I will put two links in the show notes, uh, and I would recommend uh, reading them in the order I put it down. So first about uh, Safe Harbor and the, the history, and then the next link is about what's happening right now. And it's a fascinating story actually where one person uh, named Max Schrems uh, basically went up against Facebook initially and he won. Uh, now, however, this case is being tossed around between different courts uh, in Ireland and in Luxembourg. And when I try to visualize this process and what's actually happening, I always imagine this. So imagine just a bunch of people standing in a circle and throwing a balloon full of water to each other, and then nobody knows when it will burst and who will get soaked with the water that's inside it. But the consensus around is that someone is certainly going to get screwed and screwed badly. And this is what's happening right now, and it seems like the Luxembourg court is basically screaming at the Irish courts, why the hell am I actually getting this balloon at all? It's not mine, and I'm not playing this game with you. So check out the links in the show notes uh, for this story and we will definitely talk about it again in December uh, when uh, things are decided or at least uh, there is some news uh, from the uh, Court of Justice. So that sounds like a great thing that I should be brushing up on because this week on the podcast, we've had kind of a, a theme running through it about big tech and how Europe is dealing with big tech and some, some of these different developments. And that's also what my recommendation is for this week. So back on this big tech theme. And from where I'm sitting at the moment, there's quite a lot of critique about the technology industry. And it seems that there's considerably more comfort in challenging technology right now than there used to be. So the U.S. last week fined Facebook, um, you might have heard about this, $5 billion U.S. dollars over the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And this fine is the largest in FTC history. But on the news of it, Facebook's stock price surged. So this is just one indication that the mechanisms that are used to regulate big tech and ensure good trading practices aren't particularly working as intended. So Facebook actually made money on the announcement that they were getting fined. And as we speak, workers in Germany at Amazon are going on strike in advance of Prime Day over their working conditions. And strikes in Europe at Amazon locations are a perennial issue, and we've talked about it on the podcast before. And it doesn't seem like no matter what happens, nothing seems to get better. And these have been going on for years, yet more and more people are getting ready to shop this week on this uh, manufactured holiday. But the piece I really wanted to recommend this week is about YouTube, which is, of course, another American tech giant that's received considerable criticism over the past months. Recently in Europe, YouTube's algorithm placed a blurb with information about the 9-11 terrorist attacks on videos of the no Notre Dame fire. Um, and that received quite, quite a lot of bad attention. But YouTube has an even shakier reputation when it comes to how it addresses hate speech and bigotry. So I wanted to share this great podcast by Reply All about Carlos Maza, which, who is a progressive journalist, and he's been the subject of considerable hate and bigotry on, on the YouTube platform. And I think everyone should have listened to the podcast. Um, and just to, if you think YouTube's response was appropriate, uh, reply pod, reply all podcast is also just a great one to add to your, to your feed to listen to great production value and really, um, good quality journalism. But what makes YouTube's response puzzling is the unevenness in which they police the platform. So this week, they've just announced that they've pulled the British far-right activist Tommy Robinson off their platform for hate speech. But at the same time, other videos that appear to be just as bad remain up. 
um, across Europe is quite uneven. In Germany, the policing is very strong, but in other countries, it, it is um, very varying. But why I've put these stories together, YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, all because of a similar thread that runs through them. Whenever there seems to be an issue, one of the common responses from these big companies is that because they're so big and the scale is so great, that oversight or management is impossible and that we should just kind of accept these growing pains. Um, in some ways, it makes France's effort to simply tax them and tax them at also a very small proportion of their revenue seem Herculean. And taxation is a very basic element of governance, but the pushback so far has been really incredible. So what will it take for governance to really regulate these platforms? So far, the jury seems to be out and European Commission, while they are working very hard on a number of these issues, it is a lot slower than I think a lot of people will be demanding. So I'm really waiting for the EU to take the lead here. What do you think, Andre? I think that uh, the idea of moving fast and breaking things would not work here for the government. So I'm actually okay with the speed uh, with which it's uh, happening. I think it's better to take more of a measured approach, just again to sort of show the contrast uh, between how the European Union, for example, approach this question and uh, how the companies make uh, their decisions. But uh, yeah, what, what you mentioned before about the uh, the price uh, the, the price of the stock of Facebook is soaring after the five billion dollar fine. This is just amazing. This is I read about it just maybe a couple of hours uh, before the recording, and I was really surprised and uh, really interested in what uh, sort of dynamics, Definitely. wrong dynamics, of course, yeah. it shows it's, and drives. It's, it's very frustrating trying to think about how we can do things better, but also wanting to do things in the right way. Um, and really, it, it, it's down to, to countries and governments to take leadership on these issues. And I think it's, in many cases, there is concern that overregulation will lead to less innovation and, and hard, make conditions more difficult for European companies but when they're when sometimes when these platforms are hurting people, um, we really need to think about if it makes sense to be moving as slow um, to regulate as as Europe does um, traditionally. To be entirely honest, the more I hear and read and discuss it, uh, the more I kind of think that maybe splitting this uh, behemoth up is not such a bad idea. I didn't think I would ever say that, but maybe it makes certain sense. Well, that, that is a great conversation. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into that today, but definitely something we should pick up on another um, podcast in the future. Yeah, absolutely. For now, though, this is time for us to wrap it up. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. If you're not a subscriber yet, do subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review and uh, a, um, a star rating. Uh, this will help others find uh, find the show and this will mean a lot for ourselves please do tell a friend or colleague about the podcast if it's relevant for them and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu audio engineering for this podcast is done by sound pulse this is sound pulse.com please feel free to email us with any questions suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu natalie thank you so much for joining today this is a great conversation and as always pleasure to talk to you thanks so much andre it's been um, wonderful to be on yet again. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.